Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of On the Tape Podcast. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined by Liz Young. Liz, welcome this morning. Good morning. We got a lot to do today. Big week in the markets. I feel like this is kind of a make or break week, Liz. There's lots of talk about what sort of rally, the one that guy will refuse to say on a podcast, but it has something to do with the holiday season here um, in the S&P 500. The big guy who wears red. Yeah, that guy. And like, there's lots and lots of chatter about that all weekend long. Every time I open the wallstreetjournal.com, there was an article about the stock market revving up into year end and FOMO and the like. So we're going to talk all about that. We're going to talk about some inflation data that's coming out this week. We're going to talk about what is, I, I think it's going to be a massive meeting between President Xi of China and President Biden here on Wednesday. We do have some retail earnings, a lot to talk about. But first, a little housekeeping. Stick around after this conversation. That would be myself with Liz Young, EY from SoFi. We have Ali Melly. He is the founder at Monticello Capital Partners. And Guy and I had a great conversation with him about everything going on in the credit market, specifically private credit and his thoughts on the macro there. So you're not going to want to miss that. And also on Friday's podcast on the tape that dropped on Friday, check that out. We had Halima Croft on. She is the head commodity strategist at RBC Capital. And we had a great conversation, everything in the oil patch and beyond geopolitical and the like. And so you don't want to miss that. Also, we had the CEO of Team Rubicon. That would be Art Dela Cruz, great friend of the pod, founded by someone that you know also there, Liz. That would be Jake Wood. This is a nonprofit started by Jake, 
run by Art Delacruz. They train vets and they deploy them to disaster areas. We were doing a giveaway for an on the tape hat, the first ever on the tape hat. If you gave 25 bucks or more to Team Rubicon, and we've already had so many people give, we really appreciate that. We are doing a big match on that one too and giving away hats. So go to the show notes. You know what to do. Send a minimum $25 donation to Team Rubicon. Send it to contact at riskreversal.com. That would be a screenshot and Amanda will send you a hat. So we really appreciate all the participation there. That is a great organization. All right, Liz, let's get to it here. Are you feeling the FOMO? Is that kind of oh, yeah. working in a little bit here? And, and I know you're seeing it on the Twitter, you're seeing it in the financial press, but here's the thing. Okay, and we can talk about what's happened over the last couple of weeks since that November 1st Fed meeting and since what happened with the auctions and the size of them. And we saw yields come in, stocks, the S&P 500 shot up about 7%, up nine out of the last 10 days or so. We know the MAG7 makes up nearly 30%, okay, of that S&P 500. Microsoft just closed at a new all-time high. Remember the last time it was trading here, Liz, was in July, and the stock then had a 15% peak-to-drop decline. So it just seems like yields in, the Fed dovish, okay, animal spirits taking over investors. They're going back to the things that worked most of this year. How are you shaking out here? Because the 10-year did bounce off of that four and a half level and actually feels, based on maybe maybe some of the inflation readings that we could get this week, that they could move higher. Is this rally, is it on shaky ground? I think we've thought it was on shaky ground all year. I think here's what's happening right now. First of all, we've got, yes, the 10-year moved higher, but it's 35 basis points below that 5% mental threshold that everybody got really freaked out about. So we're pretty squarely beneath that. And I think I mentioned this last week, this is sort of rational behavior for the market. Yields come down, the cost of capital, the discount rate comes down, things feel a little less pressured from that perspective, and stock prices rallied. So in this, in the meantime period, I do think that the market can probably find more upside. Do I think it's lasting and durable based on fundamentals? No, but I do think that it can find more upside. We have CPI and PPI coming out this week. CPI, much more of a market mover, headline maker than PPI, but both important to watch. The things that, as we know, will be looked at more closely in the CPI read is headline CPI. And that is expected to come down quite a bit. 3.3 is the expectation. Even if we overshoot those expectations, it's still a downtick in that reading. And I would imagine the market will fixate on that if that's the case. So if we get a 3.3, the takeaway will be CPI is cooling, inflation is getting under control, things are good. I wouldn't be surprised to see a rate cut, the probability of a rate cut increase in June, that sort of thing. And that will probably be met with positive sentiment from buyers and people that are trying to buy the dip or have that FOMO trade waiting in the wings, just looking for a reason to pull the trigger. So I do think that we're going to see that this week. The thing that is still looming out there is if you look at core CPI or core PCE. Core CPI is not expected to come down at all this month, expected to stay at 4.1%. Core PCE still at 3.7%, expected to stay there through the end of the year by the Fed themselves. So this inflation thing is not over. The Fed, I think, has been interpreted as being dovish. I actually don't think their messaging has been dovish. So there's a disagreement in the market with what the Fed is saying 
and what the market is actually uh, reacting to. It's interesting, though. It was the market reaction to the Fed meeting, right, and the auction sizes that caused the S&P 500 off. You know, like we could all agree, I I think, off of a pretty oversold condition a couple weeks ago. Sentiment was really bad. We're coming out of earnings season. That was like, let's say mixed. I think the results were fine, but we saw plenty of situations where when companies missed and not even buy a whole heck of a lot, Alphabet was one of them. The guidance was a little murky. Stocks got slammed. Now, that changed a lot after that November 1st meeting or so, but it seemed very obvious that Fed Chair Powell wanted to throw a little cold water on the rally with his commentary late last week. And and David Rosenberg had a comment in his note this morning, which I thought was interesting because he basically said that the stock market shooting up 7%, that's the sort of situation that the Fed does not want to see financial conditions ease too much, right? Like in reaction to one comment. And so that's why some of that Fed speak late last week changed the tune a little bit. When you think about just how quickly the stock market has come back right to this 4,400 level in the S&P 500. The prior high in July was about 4,600. If we were to get back there, Liz, okay, and I think that's where a lot of folks who see a year-end rally, that's 12% that would feel like in a straight line. And then you got to go all the way back to the first week of January 2022, right, when we're making new all-time highs up there at 48. And I guess the issue that I have is that we will be climbing a wall of worry because it's not like the fundamental data. It's not like the economic data right now that's giving the Fed reason to be a bit dovish or at least perceived dovish is like emboldening of a broader rally across the stock market that's based on like some sort of better economic activity. And, And I don't have to go much further than why this meeting on Wednesday with Xi and Biden is so important because the data out of China is really bad. And the irony is that both of our countries just reported GDP of about 4.9%, but the economic data, aside from that print, seems very different, right? Speak to that a little bit and the importance of Xi and Biden meeting on the U.S. soil here. There was an article in the the Wall Street Journal previewing the meeting just suggesting that both of these leaders have massive incentives to keep things on the rails right now from an economic perspective. Yes, but for different reasons. Uh, China's in in a completely different trajectory as far as economic data, as you just mentioned. The other thing is keep in mind what categories these two countries fall in, right? The U.S. being the most developed country in the world a 4.9% GDP print is blistering hot. Usually a very developed nation, you expect to grow somewhere in the two-ish percent range, two to 3% would be healthy. And that's good growth because we've already done all of the growing. An emerging nation with a 4.9% GDP rate is actually pretty disappointing. That's a slow rate. You want to see emerging nations as they're coming up and maybe transitioning from machine-led to services-led, right? All of that stuff changes, and the growth rates are usually much, much stronger. Coming from just those categories alone, we've got two countries in very different places, the U.S. trying to protect the growth that is here right now and trying to protect consumer spending that's happening. Although there's some cooling, we're trying to make sure that we can maintain a growth rate. China trying to create a growth rate, right? Trying to pull something out of a hat a little bit. So I do think there's a lot on the table for both countries, for both sides of this. And it just goes to show how intertwined we still are as nations and how intertwined our trade is and how much each economy depends on the other in direct ways and indirect ways. We've 
you've got a lot of companies in the US that had been looking to the Asian consumer to hold up their sales for a long time. And that's been pretty disappointing over the last year or so. So there is there's a lot at stake here. And then add on top of that, just the layer of geopolitical risk and tension that exists in the world. The last thing we need is an increase in tension between us and China. In the FT this morning, there was an article, a poll that the FT ran with the University of Michigan Ross School. Only 14% of US voters say Biden has made them better off. The new poll results showed that inflation continues to cloud the Biden campaign's efforts to convince voters Bidenomics, the president's strategy to rejuvenate the country's industrial sector and reverse years of middle class wage stagnation. And so they're basically going on to say that this is probably one of the lowest readings one year out for an incumbent president on that. So going back to the incentives with China, and again, there's two two things at work here. What's going on from a geopolitical standpoint, and they're leaning towards aiding Russia and the Ukraine war, and obviously Russia now aiding and, and being aligned with Iran and their proxies in what's going on with Israel and the Gaza. A strip. This is all has the potential to merge into one nasty sort of thing. And, and again, I'm not trying to put my political science hat on. It's just what I read here. But on the flip side of that, maybe all the economic stuff and, and the worries that she has right now, and obviously Biden and becoming reelected and the like, maybe we can keep things on the rails. And maybe this kind of softening of relations is the sort of thing that might keep the Chinese away from some sort of provocation with Taiwan. Now, Liz, this is interesting, though. This morning in, in the journal and all the papers talking about, might China start ordering Boeing 737 Maxes again? And this and that. these are the things that will come out of a good summit, right? Where both of these countries basically say, we've been priming the pump. We sent Secretary Blinken. We sent Secretary Yellen. They've had people over here. This has been going on for months. Let's just say we can have a little bit of a detente from an economic standpoint and then put some things in place that would give both countries a little confidence that we are there for each other economically, at least in the meantime. And and that the flow of trade isn't going to completely shut down and that we're not increasing sanctions and we're not putting more restrictions on, that there's still money moving between the two countries. And I think both would like for that to happen. We still do need some trade to move back and forth. Even after this week, it's not as if we're going to come away from this week and say, okay, all the problems are solved. Everything is fine. The relationship is perfectly intact and we can all move on our merry way. But it would help to have some increased purchasing, some increased activity, and maybe just a lowering of the nerves and the trepidation about what this could look like if things got worse or if more restrictions were put on from China on U.S. companies. We go back four years ago during the Trump administration, it seemed like every day there was a new salvo on this trade war and, and all the tariffs. And the interesting thing about it is a lot of those tariffs are still in place. I feel like the mood is probably as bad as it's ever been as it relates to China. And there really is possibly an opportunity with their economy, to your point, far weaker than ours and some of the issues that they have going on in their credit markets and their real estate markets. And it's interesting to, to note that we talk about the wealth effect here in the U.S. and it's tied to a whole host of different factors, the stock market, real estate. Over there, it is squarely tied towards real estate. So problems in the real estate market really hit the consumers there. So that's one, uh, obviously, to keep an eye on. But you mentioned one of the reasons why the stock market has had this run over the last couple of weeks or so, a lot to do with just kind of interest rates, or at least the mood or the towards the potential for them to go much higher has dissipated. I just think it's interesting. You also mentioned the potential for rate cuts. And we know that's been a moving target over the course 
course of the last year. I don't think many folks a year ago thought Fed funds was going to be at the upper end five and a half percent. So this morning we have Goldman and Morgan diverging on how quick they expect rate cuts to happen next year and where they expect to settle out. If you look at the Federal Reserve, they expect by the end of 2025 to have this 5.5 Fed funds down to 3.9 percent. Morgan Stanley expects it to be 2.375 and Goldman Sachs between four and four and a quarter. So Goldman is in the higher for longer sort of camp. That is a huge delta by two of the largest investment banks here in the U.S. And so when we think about the input of rates and the perception of equity valuations, Liz, that's a big divide here. How are you shaking out? And, and again, we've spent a lot of time talking about this. When the Fed starts to cut, it might be because this uninversion of the yield curve puts us into a recession and things get weaker. And again, we just talked about climbing a wall of worry. There's a whole host of reasons why the global economy could weaken. Might they start cutting aggressively for not good reason. I do think they're going to cut long before the end of 2024. Also, okay, let's keep in mind here, these two forecasts are for the end of 2025. We're talking about 26 months in the future. That is a very long time. Things are likely to change tremendously between now and then. And I can almost guarantee that both of those forecasts will change. Maybe some of them will even get higher. I don't know. But both of those will have to change before the end of 2025. So it's really difficult, if not impossible, to try to predict out monetary policy moves that far into the future. The Fed themselves can't even predict out monetary policy moves six to 12 months out into the future. I wouldn't put too much stock in the actual numbers that they're putting out. It's the path that I I actually found more interesting about this whole story. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe the Goldman forecast was that the Fed wouldn't even start cutting until the end of next year or maybe early 2025, which means that the Fed funds rate stays at this level. That's actually a bullish call on the economy. And I, th I think they also had a prediction of the unemployment rate moving back down at some point over the next two years. So the Goldman call is pretty bullish on the economy and assuming either a soft landing, no landing, or that we just completely skirt by recession entirely and end up growing again. That's the part that I struggle to see as most likely, just because we've already got some cooling that's happening. So that's a really great point. So in the note, they actually suggest that they've always been in the soft landing camp. They believe that's what we're getting right right now, the worst case scenario, that it almost seems like a no landing scenario. Why do you perceive it as bullish? Why wouldn't the Fed be able to lower, lower interest rates prior to Q4 2024 if there is a very soft landing? Do you understand what I'm saying? Because to me, yes. okay. doesn't that kind of keep sure. the shackles on the economy to some degree? So perhaps not bullish on the inflation picture because that it has it must assume that inflation still needs to be controlled. So we have to leave rates higher. What I perceive it as bullish is because it's the assumption that the economy can withstand rates that high and then pair that with the unemployment rate actually coming back down. So if you expect rates to stay that high and not predicting some sort of recession or a big pull down, pullback in the market, plus the unemployment rate coming back down, that assumes that the economy is strong enough, growing strongly enough, company fundamentals are strong enough that hiring actually picks back up again at some point before the Fed even lowers rates. I see that as a pretty bullish call on economic growth and just the U.S. economy overall. The idea that the economy and companies can withstand higher rates is the part that I struggle with. I think we've withstood it pretty well so far. I don't think we can withstand it for another 12 to 14 months. We're already seeing a lot of issues pop up in, in some of the smaller areas, things like subprime auto loans at their highest delinquency rate ever, right? Those sorts of things that are, that are popping up in the more stressed parts of the market. But 
over time, that spreads out into wider areas. And I do think that in order for companies to maintain margins as expected, they're going to have to cut costs. And those cost cuts are going to come in the form of labor cuts. So the idea that the unemployment rate would actually come back down is hard for me to do that that math on in my head. You mentioned on, on the consumer front, delinquencies, auto loans, we're going to start seeing more and more foreclosures in probably commercial real estate, which would all obviously, to me, lead that you're going to see more stress in the housing market and the consumer market too. And so those are the two things that I'd keep an eye on. So I just want to go back to that FT poll for a second about Biden's job on the economy. Here was a quote from the article in the response to inflationary pressure. 65% of voters said they had cut back on non-essential spending, such as holidays or eating out, while 52% said they had reduced spending on food or other everyday necessities. That's not a good data point right there for the consumer. We've been talking about it a lot on the pod over the last six to 12 months or so. Talk to me a little bit about where you see the consumer. We had data last week, University of Michigan, you tweeted about it. We'll put it in the show notes. Came in worse than expected here. Here. Anecdotally, I'm starting to get like holiday email. It, it seems like it's going to be a very promotional retail season. We're going to get some retail earnings over the next couple of weeks too. Thoughts here on the consumer, especially at a time where we're looking at CPI, we're looking at PPI, and we can explain it away. If we still have a three handle on CPI, that's a lot better than the nine handle that we had a year, year and a half ago or something like that. But it's still 3% year over year off of those elevated levels. Yeah, there has been no negative print yet in the inflation data, which means that prices are still high. They just stopped growing as fast. So a few things about this. These are the under the surface inflation readings and things that I think people need to remember and and think about. When you look at the PMI data that's come out so far in November, we had PMI data on manufacturing and services, both disappointed versus expectations. And there's a component in both of those surveys called prices paid. The prices paid component both came in above expectations. So that indicates that you've got businesses still dealing with high inflation down the supply chain. So that means that their margins are going to be under pressure because they're still having to pay for inflated prices as they make their products or as they create their services. So that's thing number one. The other thing more recently, as you pointed out, the University of Michigan survey that came out last week is inflation expectations. So not only did the survey data miss on a top line basis, but the inflation expectations component is measured both over a one year period and then a five to 10 year period. Those both ticked up and not just a little bit. They both ticked up a decent amount. So that's consumers saying that they expect inflation to be a problem, if not a bigger problem than it is today over the next 12 months and five to 10 years from now. So as consumers expect prices to stay high, particularly for a long period of time, that's where you start to get into this issue that the Fed had talked about quite a bit. They haven't said much about it recently, but into this issue of inflation becoming entrenched in the economy. And that's where you really run into problems. I think one of the things that Powell keeps saying is that if prices are not stable or if we can't maintain stable prices, the economy doesn't work for anyone. And that's still true. The thing that would be the biggest problem is if inflation became entrenched. The way that they measure that is by inflation expectations. So I think the most concerning part of that survey last week was that expectations had moved up and consumers 
are not feeling as promising about the prospect of inflation falling, particularly falling and staying down as time goes on. Yeah. And I always find this period in mid-November really interesting where we have all these major box stores reporting earnings right before Black Friday, right before the big holiday season and some of the things that they are expecting. And we know that it's been, you know, a kind of seesaw couple years for a lot of these folks who had to deal with inventory issues coming out of COVID. And now just the dispersion between some of these retailers is just fascinating. Walmart's trading an all-time high where Target has been cut in half and some of it's their exposure to food pricing and some of their exposure to apparel and, and inventory issues and the like here. So to me, this is going to be a really interesting couple weeks, especially as we head into the holiday season with expectations right now firmly in the camp that we are going to rip into year end. One thing I want to say about retailers real quick, just for people to keep an eye on, as somebody who shops and enjoys shopping quite a bit, I've got a good pulse on how things change over time. And, and you usually have brands that you're more familiar with. What I think is starting to happen, I, and actually just today, and this is all anecdotal, but when brands that don't really ever put their things on sale start to run sales, it's them trying to stimulate demand, right? It's them trying to do that whole, the volume thing. They need more volume in order to maintain sales at a certain level. How do you get volume? You cut prices and do an enticement for a short period of time. So there's a particular brand and I ordered something today because they never really run sales and they had a 25% off sale that's going on for the next 10 days. So I bought something. It worked, right? Hook, line and sinker. But either way, when you start to see brands running discounts, that you're not used to seeing run discounts. You know that demand is probably softening or they have inventory that they need to unload. They've overestimated the amount of inventory and they need to unload it. They're trying to get rid of it. So yes, I do think it's going to be a very heavily promoted holiday season. I think it's going to be fascinating to find out whether or not consumers actually step up to the plate and buy the stuff that's being promoted or if this is finally going to be the time where we see that even holiday spending was weaker and people are pulling back. Yeah, I suspect that some of the trends that we've seen from consumers that they will step up to those promotions and, and could be the death rattle, I, I think, for this kind of cycle of consumer splurging. Exhibit A for what you just described is what's happened in Tesla over the last year and a half. They've cut prices six or seven times. That is not something you expect from a large auto company, especially one that has the market share that they have in their main market in North America. And, and the stock has performed very poorly since they started cutting prices, I think, about 18 months ago. So that whole idea of price elasticity, it, it works until it doesn't, until it becomes, again, entrenched, like we were talking about inflation. And the last point I'll just make is that's going to really hurt margins for a lot of these companies, right? And when we think about S&P expectations for earnings in 2024, they're really rosy, up double digits. And they've been coming down a little bit. We've been quoting the fact set data, but not a lot. So when you think the further stocks run right now, okay, and S&P earnings remain steadfast, yet we see margin pressure all over the place, that disconnect is the thing that has the potential to me to just turn into a very sharp sell-off. And so I think the higher we go into year end is probably the harder we fall in the new year. So that's my two cents there, Liz. Any sectors you want to be focused on, it, let's just say we are going to make a, a move back towards 4,600 in the S&P 500 away from the leadership. And just to be very clear, I don't know if you saw the SMH on Friday it was up 4%. That's the ETF that tracks semiconductors. NVIDIA is very near its prior all-time closing high, just above 500 bucks. They report next week. That's going to be one on the radar to me. But semis have come back. Intel's very near a 52-week high. That's a stock that was in the doghouse. Taiwan Semis had a massive run over the last couple of weeks after being down more than 20% from its highs over the summer. So semis 
very cyclical, I'd say bullish, right, for the broader economy. But there's a lot of other very cyclical areas of the market, energy, industrials, transports that don't act particularly well. If we do continue this run, it's more likely to be on the heels of rates continuing to come down, in which case I think you hear the same old story. Growth stocks see a revival. Consumer discretionary stocks I don't think are going to really come off the mat too much just because there are a lot of concerns about the consumer and we keep hearing rumblings about spending coming down, much of which we've already just covered on this podcast. So discretionary might be the spot that doesn't participate as much in a growth-led rally, but those big tech stocks that took it on the chin since the end of July, I think they probably still can do well. And we talk about the FOMO trade. Generally, we're talking about individual investors, right? Retail traders in that FOMO trade. And we know that individual investors do buy the Magnificent Seven stocks and particularly younger investors too. If you look at just the appetite and the people that are out there active in the market, we probably see a bid for those and the FOMO trade benefits that. The thing that I think is interesting to watch through the end of the year is that now we're talking about this year-end rally. We're going to talk about it ad nauseum. We might get one. If that happens, okay. But then once it's over, then what? That's That would be my concern. So we get past, okay, the year-end rally piece, if that's correct, and it does actually occur. Also, what we do, I can say this because Guy isn't here today, what we do call a Santa Claus rally actually happens after Christmas, right? It, it actually happens right around Christmas Eve, and then the expectation is that it continues through the end of the year. So let's say that occurs. Then we get to January 1st, and it's like, now what are we excited about? So that's where the air could come out of the balloon. We've seen that happen a few years, even in the past 10 years, you've seen that happen. Although I think it's okay to, to talk about a year-end rally and speculate on whether or not it's going to happen. You have to also look out further as an investor and worry about not just the benefit of getting a year-end rally, but how much of it could you give back in January if the year-end rally was too hot? We've talked about this a lot. We had this in late 2021, right? The S&P 500 rallied, I think, from the end of September it was probably around current levels, 4,300 to 4,800. Like literally, it was just grinding higher at a time where the Fed was hinting that they were going to start raising interest rates to battle inflation. And it was a similar sort of dynamic, Liz, where money flows were just moving into the major indices. The, the small caps were not confirming the new highs in the S&P 500. And the NASDAQ actually topped out late in that year. It was the S&P 500 that still saw the flows. And to your point, what do you have to look forward to when you get into January of 2024, you have the potential for estimate revisions lower and the stock market trading above the 10-year average with interest rates much higher. And then if you start seeing inflation readings start to tick up a little bit, that's the thing where maybe that golden forecast goes from being bullish to some people's minds where you could have rate cut for the first time in late 2024. That gets pulled forward for not good economic reasons and therefore weighs on stocks, in my opinion. I don't think a stagflationary environment is going to be good for risk assets. So there you have it, people. All right, Liz, we covered a lot of ground here early on a Monday morning. I appreciate you being here with us, especially on the day after your Packers lost to the Ugh. Steelers. I know that's probably- Somebody what sent me, wait, this is so cute. Somebody sent me a DM on Twitter and it was a Steelers tweet and they had a cheese grater. It was a picture of a cheese grater and then a a chunk of cheddar cheese that had been shredded. Yeah. And I don't remember what the caption was, but basically that they shredded the cheese heads. As painful as it is, I thought it was a clever post by the Steelers. I'll take it. Whoever sent that, they had one opportunity to slide into your GMs and that's what they did. Not particularly <laughs> cool there, people. Um, <laughs> they sent an insult. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, Liz Young, thanks so much. All right, stick around for my and Guy's conversation with Ali Melly, the founder of Monochilled Capital. 
With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. We're joined by Ali Melli. He's the founder of Monticello Capital Partners out there in Greenwich, Connecticut. I think you're going to be fascinated by this conversation. Ali, how are you? Good morning. I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. We're thrilled to have you and reading through your notes, a lot of the things you are talking about and thinking about line up with some of the things that Dan and I have been talking about for quite some time. But before we get into markets and stuff, people always want to know background, how you got to where you are. So if you could indulge us for a minute or so and give us the the 411 on Ali Melly. Sure. I was born and raised in Iran. I came to United States in 2001. I was able to get out of having uh, to do military service. Little tidbit because I was awarded the gold medal in the International Physics Olympiad. So they, they took the view that I've done my duty to the country, didn't have to do military service. I always had the dream of coming to United States, came there to MIT, graduated in 2004 and started working at Goldman initially as an analyst, worked my way to partner in 2014 and I started monitoring in 2019. All right. So talk to us, Ali, a little bit about what you were trading over that Goldman and then basically how you conceived a monochill. Let's get into the strategy a little bit. Sure. At Goldman, I started at a group called Structured Credit Trading. Also later on became Principal Funding and Investments. Initially, what we were doing was basis trades, like trading between bond and CDS in a structured credit. So 2004, there were a lot of monoline insurance companies that where give credit guarantees on securities. And one of the things that we did was look at essentially the price arbitrage between cash CDOs and CLOs, and then where 
you can't possibly hedge them. And that was the little business that got started. One of the things that was fascinating was at Goldman, we were very much into counterparty risk. So we never faced those insurance companies directly unless they could post us margin. So we had a lot of European banks that were intermediating that risk for us. And that turned out to be a very wise, essentially risk management decision. And one of the things that I noticed looking at those monolines companies was their balance sheets didn't make sense. They were 100 to 1 leverage. And one of the early trades that I put on there was shorting the monolines. It would only cost a few basis points to short monolines in 2006, 2007. You can even pay five basis points, seven basis points to buy CDS on FSAs of the words and AMBACs of the word. And sometimes people were not worried about the risk of default, but they were, they, we had a risk metric called jump to risk free, which is how much money will you lose if your protection becomes worthless. That was very eye-opening to me. 2008 happens, made a lot of money on those shorts, but then the business had to be reoriented. I, we worked on transactions with some of the companies uh, like CIT, specialty finance companies. And again, we use a lot of structure finance techniques to make sure that we are collateralized. We have access to good margin. So that strategy got tested in 2009 when CIT filed for bankruptcy. Those transactions performed as expected. Later on in my career, I applied the same trading and uh, structuring philosophy to transactions in Europe and Latin America. In 2016, became involved with a group called, or essentially the firm puts a bunch of groups together called the Structured Finance Investing and Lending. And uh, that's where I started to get the idea for Monachil, which is, is really bank balance sheet, the best source of liability structure for financing in some of these specialty finance consumer asset classes or having a closed-end fund with a defined liability structure where your capital is locked in, you don't have asset liability mismatch, is a better mousetrap to invest in some of these essentially more stickier, less liquid investments. Think about what you just said and indulge me again for just a minute. I obviously knew the definition of the word rigor growing up, but I really didn't understand what it meant until I got to Goldman Sachs. And if you've worked there or if you currently work there, that's a word that's thrown around a lot. And what you, and I'm not going to say stumbled upon, but what you discovered in 06, 07, 08 is similar to what our partner on On The Tape, Danny Moses and his group and a couple other people, obviously not stumbled upon, but discovered. And it takes rigor to figure out really what's going on below the surface. Because if you recall back in those days, everything was going fine. There were no roadblocks, green pastures, a lot of runway. Nobody was looking for the things that you obviously found. The other thing I learned at Goldman Sachs, amongst many, is take a partner, Ollie. And that means if you have an idea about something, it's always good to get another set of eyes on it to punch holes in your thesis. With all those things that I just said, my sense is a lot of those skill sets have been transferred to what you're doing now. So speak to the structure at Monochill now. We put a lot of emphasis on on risk management, data, and using the data. Because, for example, making sure that in my old life, very important to make sure that you make your margin calls on time. Even if something is illiquid, having a good idea of where it needs to trade that day, making sure your valuation is up to date. Looking at the trustee reports, even though like crisis hit in 2008, you could look at some of the trustee reports from 2006, 2007. You can see some of the trends that, okay, people are being 
delinquent on their mortgages, like the default rates are gradually picking up in 2006, 2007. And then also comparing less liquid markets with more liquid markets. There was a point in time in 2007 where it was a little bit surreal. You would look at ABX trading at much lower, and then we were receiving valuations from third parties. And these were very questionable because they were saying, oh, like AAA ABS studios are trading at par versus ABX was showing massive signs of distress. So looking at that data, both in terms of looking at how each deal is performing is very important. Looking at how liquid markets are performing also gives you a lot of insight. The way we have tried to import that concept here is we put a lot of emphasis on data analysis, trying to understand, especially if you are working with maybe fintech companies or even more traditional lenders that have good systems, you can get data from their loan management system on a daily basis. Who's paying their money on time? Who's not paying their money on time? How does the delinquency change on a day-to-day basis? Incorporating that data and forming insights from them about both health of maybe a particular investment as well as market price of a particular investment. I think is one of the things that I'm very grateful for what Goldman taught me. And honestly, like there are a lot of generous, kind people at Goldman, even though it's a very rigorous place, there are a lot of partners where I was a junior there that were generous with their time and really took me under their wings and helped me grow. So Ali, you just mentioned before, I think that the very astute risk management decision that was entered into as you were thinking about the monologue lines and shorting them. This has been the mid-aughts. And and when you think about just your strategy being born within a bank, and I know Guy and a lot of folks that I know from Goldman over the years would say the Goldman was anything but a bank, the way that they operated. And a lot of the strategies that folks like you have been able to go out and, and start companies and employ and raise lots and lots of capital managing was born there. Talk to us a little bit about how the change in bank business models, how the regulatory structure really, obviously, since banks went under in, in the wake of the financial crisis back in in 08 and 09, but we just went through a period in 2023 where some very big banks went under based on some very poor risk management decisions. Some of them as large as Credit Suisse, but obviously some big regional banks here in the U.S. Talk to us a little bit about how that validates your strategy at Monachill and, and, and the opportunities that are being presented. I want to start, maybe take a little history lesson on what happened in 07 and 08. And I think the regulators in some instances took the wrong lessons. But let me first start by saying what they got right. What they got right is you need to have less leverage in the system, more capital in the system. That was directionally the right thing to do. And I think we actually are we have benefited from that for the past 15 years from the financial system having more capital, essentially people not having to have a heart attack every time something gets a little bit off track because the banks are well capitalized. But what went, I think, wrong with respect to regulation, I pointed to a couple of areas. And you can see how they see that the crisis that hit early in 2023, and I don't think it's over yet. It's maybe a more of a slow motion crisis because the banks are well capitalized, but there is still trouble there. The first thing that the regulators got wrong, in my view, or the regulatory framework, and maybe everyone got wrong, was over-reliance on deposits. What was the lesson that some people took from 2007? Probably the wrong inference or the wrong lesson. Okay, Bear Stearns didn't have big deposits. Lehman Brothers didn't have big deposits. They got into trouble. So the lesson that people inferred was deposits are good. Repo lines relying on repos and commercial paper is bad. Let's create a lot of incentive in the system for the banks to rely on deposits. 
like a lot of regulatory metrics got changed in that way. And the philosophy was that deposits are stable, deposits are sticky. As we are learning, actually deposits are not as sticky as people say. Some of it might have been true in 2007, 2008, where online banking was just at early stages. But in 2022, when you can click a button to move your money from, I don't know, being at deposit at, you name it, bank, into a brokerage account at Charles Schwab, and then you can take that money at Charles Schwab brokerage account into treasuries, the trades that they call it is T-bill and chill. You can do the T-bill and chill, taking your money from your bank account, put it in a brokerage account with click of a button in two days. And by the if your money is in a brokerage account, you can access it by another click. Next day, you can have your money back T plus one if you are putting it in T-bills. That phenomenon means that A, deposits are elastic. What does that mean? It means that the price that which a bank needs to pay for their deposits may need to keep up with the market. We have not seen that yet on all the banks. It's maybe more right now pertinent to online banks. But at some point, you might get to a place where even... Bank of America and JP Morgan and Wells Fargo needs to feel that, okay, now our deposits are becoming lower and lower because people are putting their money in T-bills. Maybe you should start paying more for the deposits. Essentially, like feeling so safe about deposits in a world where because of the changes in technology, deposits are less sticky is one of the drivers of the crisis. The second thing that happened was a little bit of trading book versus banking book and hold to maturity versus mark to market. Again, the lesson people said, oh, Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and Morgan Stanley and Goldman, they, were, they had so much mark to market. It's destabilizing for the system. Let's encourage banking book. Let's encourage hold to maturity accounting. That combination also was a little bit, in my view, misguided because it didn't focus on substance of the risk. If you make a CRE loan, your risk is your borrower cannot pay you back. It's less about whether you decide to classify its accounting as hold to maturity or mark to market. But at the end of the day, if you are overvaluing a building, you are taking a lot of risk. Your accounting, actually, if you put it in a non-mark to market accounting, you might be making the situation worse because there is no market discipline. You might keep making bad decisions and because you are not marking your book to market. We saw that combination of non-mark to market plus a lot of encouraged lending versus trading resulted in a situation where probably there was over allocation of capital to commercial real estate, be that office, be that multifamily, be that other sectors of commercial real estate in the banking sector. I want to come back to that in a second, but these are just my thoughts. You know, I think bank regulations, say what you want about them, but in some ways they were put in place to protect banks from themselves, from risky behavior, guidelines. You have a view, and I actually share this view, that regulations, which theoretically should make banks stronger, in some ways have actually made them weaker. And we can have that conversation in a minute, but thoughts on that. I, I think you're absolutely right. Some of them, and they were not that anyone had any ill intent. I'm not in the camp that like it was intentional. But I think, for example, take something like Volcker. The idea behind Volcker is don't do prop trading because it's risky. It came after JP Morgan's CIO 
office suffered some losses. The way it got implemented, it wasn't that you do XYZ, hold more capital for it. It was more like banning certain activities. So how did Volcker got implemented? Okay, don't do trading, but if you take the exact same risk and call it investing or call it lending, it's totally fine. Essentially, underwriting, investing, lending is fine. Just don't call it prop trading. And oh, by the way, a sign that we can look for when you are doing prop trading is mark to market. But if you don't mark your book to market, we view that as a sign of not engaging in prop trading. That combination got to a place where a lot of regional banks, as well as some of big banks, actually their CIO office started to go in treasuries, for example, without marking the treasuries to market by putting in in hold to maturity. Same thing with CREs. And now I think some of the banks we are seeing like around in the banking system, there is more than uh, $600 billion of unrealized losses Mm -hmm. related to their treasuries holding. That's even before looking at CREs. And I think the size of that is just too big. I was about to bring that point up exactly, that these unrealized losses, these hold to maturity assets, whatever they are, they're approaching probably, if you add it all together, trillion dollars. That's a bit of a ticking time bomb. And let's discuss that for a second. But this is something I've said on our show on Fast Money. The difference between a rogue trader and a partner is the P&L. And that comes back to the whole prop trading thing that you're talking about. Prop trading was given this sort of four-letter word for a period of time, but it was an essential part of these banks. And that's just me pontificating. But going back to the unrealized losses, Bank of America, and I'm not asking you to comment on Bank of America, but they will say, not a big deal, hold to maturity, will be fine. Meanwhile, and in a lot of ways, it hamstrings them from able to do other things. How big of a problem do you think potentially these unrealized losses on bank balance sheets are? It's an interesting point. If that was the only thing, it was unrealized losses and you were holding to maturity and you were just foregoing future profitability, i.e., you know what? I have this like $500 billion portfolio of maybe bonds that are yielding 2%. The only thing that it means is that now I, I can no longer make loans at 7%. Maybe compared to someone who has a clean balance sheet, I'm going to be less profitable. That could possibly be fine. Where it's dangerous and where the jury is out is the other side, which is really what's your cost of liability? If the cost of liability stays low, if at the end of the day, your cost of liability, your cost of deposits stay below 2%, if your book is yielding 2%, but your cost of deposits is less than 2%, let's say with your OPEX and everything else, over the life of this thing, you can have profits. Where it becomes dangerous is the short-term rates go up, T-bills gets issued, consumers realize that I don't no longer need to be keeping my money in a bank, get overnight, get essentially 0%, 1% on my deposits. I can put it in T-bills and get 5%. So unless banks start paying me 5%, I will just take my money in a brokerage account. If that starts to happen, and we have not seen that happening in big banks. We are seeing some of that in regional banks where their cost of deposits is going up and uh, NIM or net interest uh, margin is coming down. But if that starts happening in big banks, if you are a bank that has your 10-year treasuries that you bought at 2%, 
but you need to pay 3% to finance them, 4% to finance them, or you need to report them with the Fed and pay more than 5% to finance them. That negative carries is what kills you because you have not marked to market, the accounting losses drop as negative carry did. It's interesting, Ali, as the market over the last, call it week and a half or so, has had this big ricochet, right, off of three, four-month lows or so. I think the S&P at its lows was nearing 9% peak to drop decline. It's, it's rallied back pretty significantly as yields have come in, the bank bounce is, has been really anemic. And, and to Guy and myself, that said a lot to us about just the breadth and, and where investors are, are looking to take risk. And I was reading in the research of, of this conversation over there on your website or one of your websites, bonnetchillfunds.com, you, you have a monthly market insights, market and, and economic insights. And, and one of the first topics you hit, now this was October 17th, okay? So this was when yields were higher and equity equity markets were lower. You had one of the first comments in there is that recent winding and long-term yields is consistent with our view about the low likelihood of a soft landing. Okay, let's talk about the macro and, and your views there and what's changed since you wrote this since October 17th or so. We've seen the 10-year go from 5%, probably what where we probably four, five, five right now. And like I said, the equity market has bounced pretty significantly after being at multi-month lows here. What are your thoughts about a soft landing at this point? So the first question is, what is the definition of soft landing? To me, soft landing needs to have three components. Inflation being very low, less than 2%. Economy not being in recession and economy growing. And the fiscal picture or federal budget being on a sustainable path, which if you look at after World War II, that's really three and a half percent deficit. And I do not think at this point, the combination of those three things is possible at the same time. We could have one or maybe two, but not all three of them at the same time. Where does some of the challenges come from? First of all, like if you look at the rally and the snapback, I'm not saying it's entirely driven by that, but one of the events that caused the snapback was the announcements by Treasury on November 1st that we are going, you know, guys, we are going to issue maybe less 30 years and less 10 years and more short-term debt. Actually, the amount of changes that they said they do is less than a billion dollars in each or a little bit more than a billion dollars in 10 and 30s. The fact that market reacted with such tiny amount in the context of a federal budget deficit, which is $2 trillion, $1 billion, suddenly everything is rallying so much. It raises the question of where is that marginal bite of treasuries? I was actually listening to your show the other day as I was driving with Luke Roman that a lot of time I listened to him. He actually has very inspiring in terms of questions that he's asking. The buyer of the marginal buyer of long-term treasuries is a big determinant of where things are going to go. And if that marginal buyer needs to become households, then probably you may need to be at a board where rates might need to be more than 5%. And this thing is not over till we actually know over the next two or three years, $2 trillion a year or even more than that supply of treasuries, where would it be? If they issue more short-term treasuries, it's going to compete with the banks. Like it, It's one of those things of no-win situation. If you do short-term treasuries, it's going to take short-term liquidity out of the systems. It could create accidents for the banks. If they issue more long-term, it might push the long-term real yield higher. It could push down the equity valuations because now probably people view 10-year yields as a proxy for the discount rate. If you have discount cash flow model or as a proxy for how much the equity market needs to pay you. And if that, those yields start going higher, that's going to put pressure on the equity markets. Preaching to the choir. 
without question. And I'm glad you listened to that one with Luke because I was fascinated. I found myself a listener as well. And I've, I've been talking about this. Who is the incremental buyer? And I think a lot of what you just said is spot on. I'll add to that. Perhaps the market got itself too negative bonds. Positioning was too short of the bond market. And that sort of reflex snapback was exactly that. But I'm with you. And we find ourselves in this really odd position. The economy is clearly slowing down. And we'll talk about unemployment and some of the factors and inputs you're looking at. I mean, ISM data, everything sort of points to things slowing pretty markedly which should make yields go down. Of course, the flip side of that coin is issuances are going up. Who's the incremental buyer? And if that buyer does step in, they will by definition demand a higher rate of interest to buy our debt because they should. How do you wrap your head around that? I still think that yields are going higher. I'm not going to walk away from that. I think that is negative for equities. Obviously, over the last week, that's been the wrong stance, but I think it's just a sort of a momentary snapshot in time. I think you addressed it, but expound upon that. At the end of the day, it comes down to the balance in the economy, balance in the goods market, balance in the labor market, balance in the savings and investment markets. What does it mean where federal government deficits expands from 3% structural like deficit to 7%? It means that people, households, and corporations need to save more essentially to finance that 7%. So two things need to happen. First of all, consumption needs to come down for it to get to a steady state, you need to have more savings, less consumption. So as consumers make decisions about how much to borrow, they need to borrow less, how much to save, they need to save more, how much they need to consume, that consumption needs to come down. The second thing is that your savings, which then needs to match your investments, the composition of saving needs to be more geared towards government bonds and maybe less to equities. Mechanism by which the markets adjust for this is higher real yields. The higher real yields causes people to say, you know what, I would rather maybe forego some of my consumption and save more because not saving is becoming more rewarding. That's the reverse of what was going on in the market after quantitative easing of 2008 and 2009. Saving is becoming more rewarding because real yields are being built up. That's one mechanism that is kicking in. The second mechanism is the attractiveness of government securities for people to sell their equities, sell their credit, sell their non-government investments and come to the government securities. And that happens as reals go higher. And because you, at some point you need to have the accounting balance sheet to hold government bonds on households, essentially, th that happens through the mechanism of higher yield. It will not be a linear process of like yields going from 3% to 6% or 7% in a real line. There is going to be ups and downs. There is going to be market structure. Sometimes people become too short. Sometimes they become too long. Maybe some people that take views in the futures. So there is going to be some volatility. But overall, the trend probably needs to be as long as deficit stays at 7% and if it starts, keeps fighting the inflation, then the mechanism by which you know, deficits stay where they are and inflation remains under control is by long-term real yields going higher and consumption coming lower, which essentially could result in a recession. You know, Guy, I really thought you were going to go with A Momentary Lapse of Reason, which is the 1987 album by Pink Floyd. Not that Ollie cares at all, but 
on my 800 and now 65 uh, song Spotify playlist, there is one Pink Floyd so- uh, song on it. That would be Shine On, You Crazy Diamond. Everything else you can have. But anyway, back no, to you, no, Dan. No wish you were here. Nothing from that. That is no. shocking. And, and just by the way, that album came out in September 1987. I saw them as a freshman in high school guy at the Carrier Dome in Syracuse, New York. And you were probably just stepping foot on the Drexel Burnham Lambert trading desk at that time. So you've had a very storied career like our friend Ollie here. Ollie, this has been a great conversation. And just by the way, we appreciate you listening to the On The Tape podcast because we've been watching you too since you've been on our radar. I saw you on CNBC's Last Call with Brian Sullivan. Our friend Max Myers is the illustrious producer of that program and we'll be sure um, to share this conversation. But you're a great market voice and I, I highlighted your monthly market and economic insight. Give our listener just one thought, one opportunity that you see in the market, maybe that others don't see. It's something that maybe you're employing over there at Monticello. Give us something that between now and the next time you come back on the pod, our listeners should keep an eye out. You think there's an opportunity out there. I know this is not something that we invest in Monachill, but something that we keep an eye on to see where is the right time to get involved in is obviously on valuations across the market, especially in real estate adjusting. We are not a real estate firm. We are more in consumer credit at this point. I actually see a lot of opportunities in consumer credit as the bank have to exit that. Auto loans is an interesting sector for us because when, for example, Capital One faces challenges on their CRE book, it's not that they start selling their CRE assets at a loss. They are right now in hell to maturity bucket. What happens is that they make less and less credit available to auto sector. So that to us is an interesting asset class. Where is going to be the essentially source of capital for autos as that sector is going to face challenges. And maybe something outside of what we do is commercial real estate. It is not there yet, but this idea of like cap rates being at 6% when cost of financing is at 7 or 8%, having negative leverage as they like to call it, in my view is not sustainable. Even if NOIs in that space doesn't change, there just needs to be a wholesale repricing of everything ranging from apartment buildings all the way to office. That's going to be an interesting, I think, dynamic that will play out over the next six to 12 months. I would have used the word painful. Interesting is another word without question, but I will tell you this conversation was not painful. It was extraordinarily interesting and we appreciate you joining us on the tape, Ollie. We ended this thing properly, okay? We're having a little chit-chat after the pod. We thought it was done. And then Ali just said something that got Guy jumping out of his chair. So you were going to leave us with one other thing that you wanted to follow up on, Ali. But say it just the way you said it here before, and let's have a quick conversation on this because I think this is fun. Sure. I, I was talking about the unstable bank balance sheets. And in my view, the most unstable bank balance sheet is Federal Reserve. They're unreal. Stop for a second. I love you. It's an upside down pyramid if you think about it. And you're so spot on and people don't understand. They think the leverage of 08 and 09 magically went away. When it just vanished. It went on to a balance sheet that they're not equipped to handle it. And that, of course, is the Federal Reserve. They have put on the largest prop trade in the history of mankind, and they're trying to exit it. And it ain't. And I don't think it's going to go particularly well. But please continue. Thank you. you look at the size of that. End of Q2, I checked earlier this week, as of 
Sunday nights, they had not published their Q3 balance sheet. Maybe they have published it by now. Q2, it was more than a trillion dollars of losses of mark to mark. They don't report it as loss. You need to look through some of the annexes and footnotes. But in the footnotes, they say the they call it the unrealized loss is a trillion dollars, which is a euphemism for mark to market, even though they say unrealized loss. Then you are seeing that through one of the accounting gimmicks that I find very interesting. There is a line that is remittances to treasury department. Up until 2022, they were sending around $100 billion a year to treasury department. When their balance sheet became upside down, maybe similar because their cost of liability is going up with Fed funds rates. They need to pay 5%, 5 and a quarter, 5.5 as their rates uh, keeps going up. That versus the stuff that they bought in 2020 is yielding 1%, half a percent, 2%. That negative carry at around $30 billion a quarter, because they have not recognized the $1 trillion loss, it is hitting them. Now, what they don't show on their balance sheet is that as negative capital. What they are showing is a negative negative liability, which I find that concept actually a little bit dangerous. Now, I'm not an accountant, but have seen someone have negative liability and saying, don't worry, I'm not having losses. I just have a negative liability. In the future, I don't need to make remittances to the Fed. And I view that as a negative liability, which is an asset, is questionable. If you look at Treasury's balance sheet and CBO numbers, Congressional Budget Office says that remittances from the Fed are zero. They don't show that actually it's a negative number. I, they don't, Federal Treasury Department, as far as I can tell, is not showing this as a liability to the Fed. The Fed is showing that the Fed banking balance sheet is showing that as a receivable from someone, that someone being treasury. And that's very questionable. If you combine that with the fact that it's $1 trillion of mark-to-market losses, that it will become realized over the next five to 10 years, it's a very dangerous and upside-down situation. Thank you so much. I'll say this as well. There's going to be a treasury auction coming to a theater near you soon that is not going to go particularly well. And if you think you saw bond volatility over the last six months, I don't think you've seen anything yet. I think the best or worst is that, that is, is yet to come. But Ali, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you join us on the tape. Same here. A lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.